Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania. My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday sermons. I pray that they'll be a blessing to you, and if you're ever in the area, please stop in and worship with us. We'd love to have you. Uh, last week we talked about uh, what it means to believe in the Holy Spirit, uh, and we talked about how in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit comes uh, upon people, and we see this all throughout the Old Testament. Um, the Holy Spirit comes upon Moses, and we looked at that story in Numbers where, where God brings the elders, or God says to Moses, bring the elders together, and the spirit that I have placed on you, I'm going to take some of that spirit that I have placed on you, and I'm going to put it on them. And that shows solidarity with the work of Moses. And when we looked at the New Testament, how God does the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes upon him. He ascends into heaven. Then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and descends uh, on the apostles, and they continue the work of Jesus. But the difference this time is not like with Moses, where the Spirit is upon them, but the Holy Spirit comes within them, inside them. We talked about how the Holy Spirit is not a mystical force or a a new agey energy field. We talked about how the Holy Spirit is made visible. Uh, And then we talked about how the Holy Spirit, His presence in our hearts, empowers us and equips us to continue the work of Jesus Christ that He's given us to do. So today we get to uh, the part of the creed that talks about the church being Catholic and the communion of the saints. And so when we talk about the church being Catholic and the communion of the saints, that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit as well. But but we would say that that's a work of the Holy Spirit corporately or collectively. Last week we looked at the Holy Spirit sort of individually. And when we talk about the church being Catholic and the communion of the saints, we're talking about the work of the Spirit as as a group, as a collective. And so that's what these next few lines in the Apostles' Creed address, namely that the church in its composition of both of those who, have, who are alive and those who have died in Christ. So when we hear the word Catholic, many people have a, a visible, visceral reaction to it. I have a family member one time who was reading a book on church history, and they came to the word Catholic, and they were, they, it, it, it Ah, I got them so, well, not upset, but they were like, well, I don't want to read this anymore. They got so upset, basically, that they put the book down. And they called me, and we had a conversation. And then after the conversation, they went back and they kept reading after I explained it. But some people have this visceral reaction when we hear the word Catholic. So much so that when some Christian confessions confess the Apostles' Creed, instead of saying the word Catholic, they say the word universal. So... Particularly people who have this reaction to it are those who may have had experience in the Church of Rome. And I know that there's some people who are members here who come from uh, a Roman Catholic background. But we have to remember, when we confess that the church is Catholic, we're not saying that the church is Roman Catholic. We have to be careful to not equate the two. Not to equate the two. So the word Catholic, right? We see this word, this is the word that the Christians used to describe themselves beginning right around the first century, right? So you don't hear the, the, the church calling themselves like the Christian church. They described themselves as the Catholic church. And we see this in the writings, I think, particularly of St. Ignatius, who says, you know, where the bishop is gathered, there is the Catholic church. And the reason why they do this is to differentiate the, the Catholic church, right, the faith of the apostles, from other heretical sects that were coming up that did not confess the same thing. 
And then later on in the Reformation, what we see is they use the word Catholic Church, but they, they kind of do away with the episcopacy with bishops and, and priests and so forth. And so what the Reformers, what they start to teach is the church is Catholic but what constitutes a true church isn't the presence of a bishop, but what constitutes the true church is, is the word of God preached, preached adequately, correctly. Uh, are the sacraments rightly administered and, uh, and, and disciplined? That was a mar- one of the, the important marks that the reformers had of a church. So much so, right? That the, and that's kind of what consistory was back in the day. So consistory members, we're going to do this uh, next year. You get to go and hang out outside uh, bars. And if you see members of the church come out, you can be like, uh-uh-uh, no communion for you next week. Calvin was really, really into this idea of discipline. But this idea that the church is Catholic is something that's, that's still meaningful for us today. So some people say the word Catholic just means universal. So it means a universal church. But that's kind of true, but it's kind of not quite right. So when we speak of the church being Catholic, the word Catholic should probably be better translated as, and there's a whole bunch of scholars who are much cleverer than I who have who've talked about this, not necessarily universal, but according to the whole according to the whole. So my question to you then is what makes something part of the whole? When we speak of the church being Catholic, we are speaking of the church as a whole. So for the church to be whole, we need to be united around a few things, hence the sermon series, right? There can be no true unity then of any kind if we don't have a common set of of beliefs. Fortunately, we do. And also, when we read the book of Acts, I think that we see a good description of what it means to be Catholic. So in Acts 2.42, a very short verse, St. Luke writes, and they, the, 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 the Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. So for the church to be Catholic or whole, the first thing we see is that the church has to hold to, number one, apostolic teaching. For the church to be Catholic, it has to be apostolic. So it comes from the faith and the teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ, right? To what they witnessed, both the written instructions that they gave and the verbal ones that they gave. As St. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, hold fast to our word and to our letter. Apostolic teaching is a reference to the teaching of the apostles about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and our mission as his people. So for a church to be rightly called Catholic or according to the whole, the church has to hold to and believe in and confess the teaching of the apostles, namely that Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen Messiah. The second mark of a church that is Catholic is fellowship. So this is descriptive of life in the Christian community. So the great example that we have of this is the children of Israel. So whenever we read the Old Testament, what we're doing is is we're kind of reading it backwards. We're reading it through the lens of Jesus Christ, right? And St. Paul says that the Old Testament is written for us, that the stories in the Old Testament are examples for us to teach us things, to teach us how to live. But most, most... clearly to show us Jesus, but we still can learn from their example. So when we see the story of the children of Israel, we can see the story of God's people. We see the story of the church, God's people called by God to walk with him in covenant through this life to be his people. So we are called by God for his purposes to be his nation of kings and priests. 
you're all kings and priests. But don't go home now. Or, or if you're driving home and you get pulled over by a cop and the cop's like, you were going 90 and a 50. And you're like, well, I'm a king, so I don't have to pay this ticket. The cop's going to give you a ticket and says, have you read the Constitution? Here you go. And then he might throw you in an asylum or something for claiming to be a king. No, but we are kings. We are priests. For a church to be called Catholic, it has to have a robust communal life centered around Jesus Christ and good works. Fellowship. Life together. That then leads us to share life outside of us with others. The third thing that we see with the church, the Catholic church, is the breaking of bread. So this is a reference. This is an easy one, right, you guys? The breaking of bread. This is a reference to the Eucharist, to Holy Communion. Early Christians had a common meal, right? This is how they would worship, part of part how they would worship. They would have a common meal, and then after the common meal was over, then they would celebrate the Eucharist. They would break bread, pour the wine, and then they would, take, they would partake of the body and blood of Christ there, the breaking of bread. And what this does is it reinforces fellowship, like we just talked about. It also reinforces apostolic teaching. It reinforces that we are God's people gathered around the faith of Jesus Christ. And it also reinforces the receiving of the benefits of Christ, right? And so for a church to be Catholic, it has to be centered on the sacramental life in Christ. So we come to the font of baptism and we come more regularly to the Lord's table. Because to be a Catholic church, to be a Christian church, we need to be centered on the sacramental life in Christ, the breaking of bread, The fourth thing, then, that this listed here in Acts is the prayers. Now, this is the gathering together to hear God's word, Christian worship. And here, the prayers could be a description of an actual set of pre-written prayers, sort of like an early liturgy. And we see snatches of this in the New Testament. You know that great passage in Philippians where St. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. That great passage about Christ's giving up his rights as divinity to become human. That passage was is part of an early hymn of the church. So we have these pre-written, or pre-written, we have these um, set set of, of prayers and teachings that's already incorporated into Christian worship at the beginning. But the church... The Catholic Church, for the church to be Catholic, we have to be gathered in worship together to celebrate Jesus, to hear the word of God, and to receive the sacraments. So apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Those are marks of what it means to be a part of the Catholic Church according to the whole. St. Paul reminds the church that they're the body of Christ. He says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So Jesus was baptized, the Spirit rested upon him. He was crucified, raised from the dead. Jesus ascends, and he's our sooner returning king. And we as the church together make up his body here as a whole. So we, in our own place and time, we are one with the church in ages past, and we are one with the church now, and we are one with the church in the age to come. We are baptized, we receive this Spirit, we participate in our own crucifixion and and resurrection, in our baptism, and we continue his mission. 
The theologian Thomas Oden, drawing from St. John Chrysostom, says, the church is, an, is inadequately defined as a voluntary association of believers. Christ is a living center whose members are expressions of his living body, each one being formed and imprinted by his person. He's saying here it's not enough to say a voluntary people meeting together, this is what it means to be a church. He says that that definition is inadequate. What's adequate is, or more than adequate is, is that Christ is the living center. And every member here, every single one of you, you are all expressions of his living body. That means that each and every one of us in our own way, when we go out into the world, when we go to work, not even just when we come and gather here, when we go to work, when we go to Thanksgiving dinner with our families and we fight about politics and the Republicans go, go to that table and the Democrats go to that table and the Libertarians get to eat at the big table because they're the actual grown-ups. When we have those fights, right, remember that you are an expression of the body of Christ, that you are not just a representative of Christ, but you are united with Christ and that you represent him. He is our living center and we are all being formed and imprinted by, his, by Christ. Right? So if we are not being formed by Christ, if we are not being shaped by Christ, if the gospel is not transforming our hearts, then we are doing something wrong. Then we are missing it if we are not being continually transformed, as St. Paul says, from glory to glory. Now, the communion of the saints. So as a pastor, most of the, many of the questions I, I'm asked revolve around the supernatural, and that's been throughout my entire career, both here and in other places. And it's fascinating to me in a society that holds itself to the scientific method. We just can't seem to shake the idea that there's something beyond what we can see and experience with our physical senses. So I think either there is something beyond us or human beings, for all of human history, has missed it, right? And we just need to listen to Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and we can finally discard these silly ideas and move forward. The problem, brothers and sisters, is we are wired for belief, I think, in something beyond us. And the reason why we're wired for belief in something beyond us is because there actually is something beyond us. We are made to worship something. And that something is actually a someone. So in the Apostles' Creed, we confess belief in the communion of the saints. But what does that mean? Does that mean that we believe in a special cadre of extra holy people that we can never measure up to, who can help us find our keys or get us, get us a parking space? We tend to think of the communion of the saints as just us here, right now. A theologian named Bird wrote that the communion of the saints exists horizontally among Christians who live on the earth and vertically with the departed members who are with Christ. Unfortunately, he doesn't really expand on this. And, and a lot of the stuff that I read in preparation, they didn't really address what it means to be the communion of the saints, us working together as a covenant community. In fact, one of the books that I'm reading only had like three pages on, on the communion of the saints. So I think that even, I think that this can kind of be neglected. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So let's look at this concept of being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. The imagery here in the book of Hebrews is that of a race, not just a private race between two people, but a race at an athletic competition. Think of, think of like the Olympics, right, in a stadium or a football game. 
people are on the field. You're not on the field. You're, they're watching, but you're cheering for your team. Or you're praying for the other team to lose, right? <laughs> we have this idea that, that it's a spectator sport, something, some, something going on here, right? So I think because of some of the ongoing consequences of the Reformation, we've kind of lost something of what the communion of the saints is because I think the desire to disassociate with what was seen as an apostate church Little of the idea of both the living and the dead, who are actually alive, actually, by the way, and are in some ways experiencing life in a way more real than ours, as somehow being one of Jesus, survived, at least in non-confessional churches. Like, so I think partly what happened as an outgrowth, right, is this idea of the communion of the saints gets minimized because we don't want to sound too Roman in our theology. Does that make sense? I think so. The idea of the communion of the saints is tied in with this idea of the church being Catholic. We are made up not only of those we see sitting next to us on a Sunday morning, but also of all Christians across all time. So let's briefly mention about why we, what we mean by the word saint. So primarily the word saint means, and this is from a theologian named Odin, he says that a saint is a baptized believer whose walk attests their faith in the power of the resurrection. It designates the common bond uniting all members of Christ's church in heaven and earth within and beyond history in a real communication of spiritual riches, right? So when we say saint, we're not just speaking of, uh, of an extra holy person. We are speaking of all of us who have experienced somehow right now the power of Christ, right? We have received his grace. We have, our sins have been forgiven. We have been made right with God. We have been justified, that we have been made holy. It means that we are God's holy people. Now, in forgiving our sins, we have been made holy, but we don't, we don't have a full experience of that holiness in our day-to-day lives. So I think we can say, right, that we are all saints. We can also use the word saint to describe those godly people who have set an example for us of personal holiness, charity, and piety. I'm not saying that we can ask them to do things for us, but I do believe that they're aware of us. And since we, we are all one in Christ, I think we are aware of them too. Because we have to remember communion. The word communion means to be one with something. We can't be one with something that's no longer here, right? We can't be one with the dead, but the dead in Christ aren't actually, they're not actually dead. They're alive with him. And when we partake of the Eucharist, we are one with Christ. When we gather together, we are one with one another. This oneness does not strip our individuality, but it highlights Christ's great work in offering the union that the Trinity shares with us. So when we gather here to worship Jesus, we are not alone. As we gather here to hear the word, to sing hymns, we are gathering together with Christians right now in other churches in our area. We are also gathered with the entire church all over the world. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we are also worshiping right now with the church that departed in heaven. The angels and the departed saints of the past, they are alive right now, worshiping God right now. They are having church too. And all of our worship comes and blends together. And we are all worshiping together across space and across time. 
So when we gather here, we are not alone. We are not worshiping the alone. We are worshiping with Christians all over the world, and we're worshiping with the departed saints in heaven, and our worship in heaven and on earth joins together in a beautiful crescendo as we offer our praise, love, fealty, and faith to Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world. So you might be listening and saying, well, what does this matter then about the communion of the saints and the church being Catholic? What does it matter? Well, it matters because like we heard in James and Mark, we don't need to jockey for, for, for position, well, primarily in, in, in James. It helps Christian relationships. If we're one with one another, then we should be able to love one another, right? The community of the saints also shows us that we are not alone. We are not alone. We are part of a larger whole. And the community of the saints in particular shows us that we are not alone in life and in death. I think one of the particular difficulties of our age is our, these deep feelings of loneliness. And we find in our culture nowadays that one of the biggest problems that we face is depression. Some of it's clinical, and some of it can be situational. But depression and loneliness, they just sweep through people, bringing great harm. And what the communion of the saints shows us that we are not alone, that we are not suffering alone, that Jesus is still with us, that he was, he, he's with us right now while we're alive on this earth, and he's even going to be with us when we leave this earth when we depart this earth. He is with us in our life, in our death, and he is with us in our resurrection. And I think, brothers and sisters, that that can give us hope, this understanding that he will ever and always shall be with us, that he has not abandoned us, that because we are part of this whole, because we are part of the communion of all of the saints across time, that we will understand we are not worshiping alone. We are not serving a God alone. And as we are in communion with him, he is in communion with us, and we are in communion with one another. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father, who is from everlasting, and his all-holy good and life-giving spirit. Amen. While I was, before we... we stay sitting, the, the affirmation of faith, before we get to that, as I was preparing and, and reading this and, and thinking about this sermon and, and this concept of loneliness popped up in my head, and I wasn't really going to talk about it uh, in the sermon, but it was sort of a, a last-minute addition. And so I know that many people struggle with it, or you may know people who struggle with loneliness and depression. So what we're going to do is just we're going to take a moment to just everybody bow your heads don't look up at me. Just bow your heads, close your eyes, pretend like you're at a revivalist altar call, right? <laughs> bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's just take a moment, just a moment of silence before God, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get on with our, uh, our affirmation of faith. Lord God, your word says that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us.
The word says, like I mentioned earlier, that your mercies are new every morning and that you are faithful to us, even when we are faithless. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone here and I pray for anyone whom anyone in this congregation has in mind that, that's struggling with loneliness and depression. We ask, Lord, that you would help them, that you would encourage them to get the help that they may need. But I also ask for the beautiful work of your Holy Spirit, that as we're gathered here worshiping you today in spirit and in truth, that your spirit would be with every one of us. And if any of us are struggling with these feelings of depression or loneliness, I ask that your Holy Spirit would, as we're worshiping you together, as we're in communion with you together, as we are joined together with our brothers and sisters across the earth and with the worship going on in heaven, that we are not alone, that you are with us, even if it doesn't feel like it, even at our lowest points of loneliness and depression, you are with us. You will not leave us and you stretch out your hand when we feel like we're drowning to raise us up and to pick us up. And so I pray, Lord, today that if there are people here going through that, that your spirit would begin to bring comfort and peace and the understanding that they are not alone, even if they can't see you, even if they can't even feel you, that gathered here with their brothers and sisters, they are not alone. And even when they go home, that they are not alone. That because we are in communion with all of the saints, that even when we think we're alone, you are with us. And those whom had the experience of Christ are also with us. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. You know, our church has deep roots here in the community, and we predate the founding of the United States itself. If you're looking for a church that is biblically faithful and traditionally grounded, come visit us. We may just be the church for you. You can find us online, zionsstoneucc.com. You can find us on Facebook as well, zionsstoneucc. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman. If you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at malandsman at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. May God bless you. Hope to have you visit us.